Blog Talk Radio. Lehman Brothers, 362000 Well, they're gone now. Um, 
Gable Systems, 336,000. University of California, 329,000. Yeah. Kirkland and Ellis, 311,000. Credit Suisse, Maryland, 292,000. Credit Suisse, 290,000. Okay, that's a that's a foreign company. Corning Inc. 274,000 and Greenberg Torrin LLP. A new a few familiar faces: Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Time Warmer. 21. Century Fox. Fox. What happened? Which all happen to fall under the one percent category that Hillary is now claiming to despise. But Wall Street knows the name of the game. It is their game now, after all, isn't it? Political asked them what they thought about Hillary's pseudo-populist agenda a few days ago. Back in Manhattan, the hedge fund managers, who've long been a part of a political and fundraising network, aren't sweating the put-down and aren't worrying about their take-home pay just yet. It's just politics, said one major Democratic donor on Wall Street, explaining that some of Clinton's Wall Street supporters doubt she would push hard for closing the carried interest loophole as president a policy she promoted when she last ran in 2008. Uh, but down on Wall Street, they don't believe it for a minute. While the finance industry doesn't genuinely hate Warren, the bigger big big bankers love Clinton, and by and large, they badly want her to be president. Many of the rich and powerful in the financial industry, among them Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein, um, uh, Morgan Stanley, James Corman, and Tom Needs, a powerful vice chair of Morgan Stanley, and the heads of J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank America, consider Clinton a pragmatic problem solver, not prone to populist rhetoric. To them, she becomes forgets uh, <coughs> the idea that we all benefit if Wall Street. Yeah, you know, what she is is a corporate whore, and everybody knows it. And, uh, you know, her husband is the biggest corporate prick that ever walked the face of the earth. So. So much for Hillary Clinton. The hypocrisy of this woman knows no bounds. You know, just knows no bounds. Oh, here's a good one. The net worth of Hillary Clinton. She is the one percent, by the way. All right. Let's see if that comes up. Oh. All right. Net worth of Hillary Clinton: twenty-one point five million dollars. Huh. Interesting, huh? Hillary Clinton's net worth and salary. Hillary Clinton is an American politician who has a net worth of $21.5 million. Uh, Hillary Clinton also recently served as a Secretary of State under President Barack Obama. She has also served in the United States Senate. Blah, 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 blah. Who cares how many things she's done? Secretary, Secretary of State. Salary. Uh, salary. Okay. I mean, that, that's not big money, but she's worth $21.5 million. That's just good. herself. Yeah. You're going to tell me that this woman most is not of their 1%. Money is, most of their money is in foundations and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. it's not hidden. It's all yeah, there. A lot of it. Yeah, probably twice that much, but the rest well, of I don't think, I don't. I don't think that's representative of her wealth. I think she has much more than that. Well, she probably does. That's, not, that's just hers, not her husband's. Um, and not their foundations and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, you know what? She didn't get my book. After getting called out, Elizabeth Warren accuses Obama of deliberately hiding trade details. You know, she got screwed. I don't know why she's not running. Most, most, she would be the one to to run. Elizabeth Warren. I don't know, but uh, she made a pact with the devil there with uh, the Democrats and Hillary. Senator Elizabeth Warren called on President Barack Obama to make 
details of the trade pact he is negotiating public a day after Obama said that Warren and other critics were wrong on the facts of the deal. The Obama administration has briefed members of Congress on the deal, uh, called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but has blocked members from publicly discussing specifics. Last month, an Obama administration official told the Huffington Post that the briefings on the deals were classified because they were sensitive and ongoing. But on Wednesday, Warren accused the administration of deliberately hiding unpopular details from the public. The government doesn't want you to read the massive new trade agreement. It's top secret, Warren said in a statement on our website. Mm -hmm. Why? Here's the real answer people have given me. We want... We can't make this deal public because if the American people saw what it said, they would be opposed to it. If the American people would be opposed to a trade agreement, if they saw it, then that agreement should not become the the law of the United States, Warren continued. Warren also said that there uh, were provisions in the deal that would allow companies uh, overseas overseas and weaken environmental or labor rules. The Massachusetts Senate also said that Congress should have the ability to amend the deal to get rid of objectionable provisions, something that Obama does not want to do. During a town hall meeting on Tuesday, Obama disputed that the deal was secret, noting that his administration had held 1,700 briefings on it and that it had an unprecedented labor and environmental standards. The deal, Obama said, is the most progressive framework for trade we have ever had. It's not all about trade. When you hear folks make a lot of suggestions about how bad this trade deal is, when you dig into the facts, they are wrong, Obama said. I would not be putting this forward if I was not absolutely certain this was going to be good for American workers. Obama said nothing that virtually everything he had done since coming into office had been uh, to help the middle class. Okay, what is she saying there? No, it's just a bunch of pictures. Oh, okay. So? So that's interesting, huh? So let's see. Uh, I mean, the unions are against it. Just about everybody. Everybody's against, against it. Yeah, I mean, this, this is so a horrible, horrible deal. Horrible deal. The slaves that time forgot. We've all been taught the horrors of our, of the African slave trade. It's all in the school books and plenty with plenty of Hollywood movies. British colonies in the 17th century doesn't get mentioned at all, the Irish. Most people have heard of the Great Famine, which reduced the population of Ireland by around 25%. That pales in comparison to the disaster that England affected upon Ireland between 1641 and 1652, when the population of Ireland fell from 1,466,000 to 616,000. Then things got worse. From the Tudor Tudor reconquest of Ireland until Irish independence in 1921, the English puzzled over the problem of what to do with all those Irish people. They were the wrong religion. They spoke the wrong language. But the big problem was is that there were just too many of them. The English had been practicing a slow genocide against the Irish since Queen Elizabeth, but the Irish bred too fast and were tough to kill. 
On the other side of the, Atlant of the Atlantic, there was a chronic labor shortage because the local natives tended to die out too quickly in slavery conditions. Putting two and two together, King James I started sending Irish slaves to the New World. The first recorded sale of his Irish slaves was to a settlement in Amazon in 1612, seven years before the first African slaves arrived in Jamestown. Wow. The proclamation of 1625 by James II made it official policy that all Irish political prisoners be transported to the West Indies and sold to English planters. Soon Irish slaves were the majority of slaves in the English colony. In 1629, a large group of Irish men and women were sent to Guyana, and by 1632, Irish were the main slaves flowed to Antigua, Antigua, Antigua and Montserrat in the West Indies. By 1637, a census showed that 69% of the total population of Montserrat were Irish slaves, which records show was a cause of concern to the English planters but there were not enough political prisoners to supply them in demand, so every petty infraction carried a sentence of transporting and slavery gangs combined, combed the countryside to kidnap enough people to fill out their quotas. The so slavers were so full of zest that sometimes grabbed non-Irishmen. On March 25, 1659, a petition was received in London claiming that 72 Englishmen were wrongly sold as slaves in Barbados along with 200 Frenchmen and seven to 8,000 Scots. So many Irish slaves were sent to Barbados between 12,000 and 60,000 that, that the term Barbados began to get used. By the 1630s, Ireland was primarily a source of English slave trade, and then disaster struck. Cromwell. After Oliver Cromwell defeated the Royalists in the English Civil War, he turned to Ireland, who had allied themselves with the defeated Royalists. Uh, what happened next could be considered genocide. The famine caused by the English uh, intentionally destroying food stocks and plague that followed Cromwell's massacre reduced the population of Ireland to around 40%. And then Cromwell got really nasty. Anyone implicated in the rebellion had their land confiscated and was sold into slavery in the in the um, what's that, in the West Indies. Even Catholic landowners who hadn't taken part of the rebellion had their land confiscated. And Catholic Catholicism was outlawed, and Catholic priests were executed when found. And the to, to top it off, he ordered the ethnic cleansing of Ireland east of Shannon in 1652. And soldiers were encouraged to kill any Irish who refused to relocate. Instead of trying to describe the horror, consider the words from the English state papers in 1742. In clearing the ground for the adventurers and soldiers, the English capitalists of the day, to be transported to Barbados and the English plantations in America, it was a measure beneficial to Ireland, which was thus relieved of a population that might trouble the planters. It was a benefit to the people removed, which might thus be made English and Christian, a great benefit to the West Indian sugar planters who desired men and boys for their bondsmen and the women and the Irish girls to solace them. I can't help but notice that the exact same language and logic used to justify enslavement of the blacks was used to justify enslavement of the Irish. 
it is something for those who think slavery was simply a matter of skin color to consider. As for the Irish slaves, Cromwell specifically targeted Irish children. He said, during the 1650s, uh, over 100,000 Irish children between the age of 10 and 14 were taken from their parents and sold as slaves in the West Indies, Virginia, and New England. In this decade, 52,000 Irish, mostly women and children, were sold to Barbados and Virginia. Another 30,000 Irishmen and women were also transported and sold to the highest bidders. In 1656, Oliver Cromwell ordered that 2,000 Irish children be taken to Jamaica and sold as slaves to English settlers. For some, reason, for some reason, history likes to call these Irish slaves an indentured servant, as if they were somehow considered better than African slaves. This can be considered an attempt at whitewashing the history of Irish slave trade. There does exist indentured servitude where two parties signed a contract for a limited amount of time. This is not what happened to the Irish from 1625 onward. They were sold as slaves, pure and simple. In reality, they were considered by some to be even lower than the blacks. The, the, Af the African slave trade was just beginning during the same period, writes Martin. It is well recorded that African slaves, not tainted with the stain of the hated Catholic theology and more expensive to purchase, were often treated far better than their Irish counterparts. African state slaves were still relatively new, were expensive to transport such a long distance, 50 sterling in the late 1600s. Irish slaves, on the other hand, were relatively cheap in comparison, 5 sterling. If a planter whipped or branded or beat an Irish slave to death, it was never a crime. A death was a monetary setback by far cheaper than killing a more expensive African. The English masters quickly began breeding uh, the Irish women for both their own personal pleasure and for greater profit. Children of slaves were themselves slaves, which increased the size of the masters' free workforce. Because Irish slaves were so cheap, cheap were so much cheaper, the loss of investment from torching them and killing them was not considered, considered an effective deterrent. In an ironic twist, this caused some to recommend importing African slaves instead for humanitarian reasons. Can't you can you understand what the IRA was all about? Yeah, you know, I, why, I why the Irish people blew up these fucking British I people? I, I mean, my God, I can totally I'm understand. I'm Irish. I understand. I know you are. I know. I mean, I can under totally understand the hatred, but yet I can't understand the passivity and the and the the way that, that, that the Irish have, have taken this over the years and are now completely... Colonel, well, because they were, they, they were they economically it. conquered. It. They're destroyed. A mess. Because Irish slaves were so much... Oh, we, we'd go to Colonel William Brain wrote to the English authorities in 1656 urging the importance of Negro slaves... Import, importation. Importation of, excuse me, Negro slaves on the grounds that as the planters would have to pay much more for them, they would have an interest in preserving the lives, which was wanting in the case of Irish, many of whom he charged were killed by overwork and cruel treatment. African Negroes cost generally about 20 to 50 pounds sterling compared to 900 pounds of cotton for an Irish. They were also more durable in the hot climate and caused fewer problems. The biggest bonus with the Africans, though, was they were not Catholic, and any heathen pagan was better than an Irish papist. 
Truly, I have seen cruelty there done but to servants, as I did not think one Christian could have done to another. This was by Richard Lingen, 1657. It's impossible to estimate an exact number of Irish sold into slavery during this period. More Irish slaves were sold in the American colonies between 1651 and 1660 than the entire free population of those colonies. In fact, more Irish were sold as slaves in the Americas during the 17th century than Africans. The typical death rate on the slave ships was around 37%. The Irish did not did often have one advantage over African slaves. Most of the time, their time in slavery was limited. They were often sold into slavery for 7 to 20 years, while the only way Africans could get out of slavery was to buy their freedom. While the number of Irish being sent into slavery dropped off considerably in the 1660s, it did not just end. After the Battle of Bayonne in, um, Boyan in 1691, there was another load of Irish slaves sent to the New World. Following the failure of the 1788 Irish Rebellion there were uh, tens of thousands more Irish slaves. Historic, interesting historical note. The last person killed at the Salem Witch Trials was Anne Glover. She and her husband had been shipped to Barbados as slaves in the 1650s. Her husband uh, was killed there for refusing to renounce Catholicism. In the 1680s, she was uh, working as a housekeeper in Salem. After some of the children she was caring for got sick, she was accused of being a witch. At the trial, they demanded she say the Lord's Prayer. She did so, but in Gaelic because she didn't know English. She was then hung. Amazing, huh? Isn't that amazing? Justice system hasn't changed much. No. No, no. Totally. What is your last? These girls... Huh. Well, whatever. So, anyway, uh, the Irish were greater slaves... Then the My mother told me she remembered very much when she was walking down the street, it would say, no Irish need apply. And I grew up in a... When she was a kid? Yeah. And when it, where I grew up in the community where I grew up, it was very Protestant. Mm -hmm. And Catholics moved in, and the Protestants didn't like it. And we were isolated. We weren't included in the little groups that they had. Well, until we took over. That was the way it was when I was in like first and second grade. By the time I was in sixth grade and seventh grade, we were the majority. Well, that was good. But I'll tell you, but I grew there up. There was a lot of discrimination. I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, when I, I was I, five yeah. and six and seven. Well, I grew up in a French Canadian community. Okay, in Maine, and there weren't any Protestants. There weren't any blacks. There weren't any. There was. It was the most homo, homo homogeneous sure. uh, and homogenized uh, place you ever saw. But okay, and the one Protestant family that we had was kind of run out of town, right, for being a troublemaker. Probably for being Protestant. Basically, because she wanted. She was, She ran for the. Uh, for the town council or something, or school board or something, rather, and uh, outspoken one. And uh, they left. And then the one black family that uh, was was in town, uh, they, went, they left as 
was an Air Force uh, oh. guy, so they, they, they transferred yeah. to another base. Yeah. Uh, we're, uh, but anyway, the, the, the odd thing about this is, is, is that you know racism is. Uh, Uh, we'll get to that in a little while, but I wanted to. Is Hillary Clinton is close to the Israeli lobby? Ah. This is another. This is something that really bothers me. So, she she's such a horrible candidate. You know, everything's wrong with this one. Hillary Rodham Clinton, the Democratic candidate for U.S. president in the 2016 election, is very close to the Israeli lobby and is financed by the corrupt political system in the United States as a former intelligence linguist in Florida. Scott Ricard made the comment following suggestions by the former governor of Rhode Island that Clinton is not qualified to be the next U.S. president because she supports she supported the 2003 invasion of Iraq during her time in the Senate. And Link, I remember that, too. Lincoln Chaffee blasted Clinton's lack of judgment on foreign policy in an interview with CNN's Dana Bash uh, on State of the Union on Sunday. Chaffee, who is also running for president, said uh, his biggest, nobody's heard of this guy, Chaffee. Okay, Lincoln Chaffee. Sure they have. Who is he? He's a, oh, he was a former senator from Rhode Island. Yeah, but he's, he, do you know he was running for president now? Yeah. I didn't know that. Where did you hear that? It was announced NPR? a couple of weeks ago. Must have been NPR. You listen to NPR. Hmm. I don't. Chaffee, who is also running for president, said his biggest problem uh, with Clinton is her vote in former favor of President George W.S. war in Iraq. The time as American top diplomat, Chaffee said, was kind of a muscular, top-down, unilateral, <coughs> too close to neocons, too Bush-like. I think she still is too Bush-like. Uh-huh. I mean, her husband is, a, is, is his adopted son for quite a lot. Let's see what they have to say there. Where? On that. That is what
only thing uh, that unfortunately qualifies uh, Hillary Clinton to be president is the fact that she's well connected to financiers of the incredibly corrupt political system in the United States. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's for sure. I, I apologize. Scott. Lincoln Chaffee was governor of Rhode Island. I said senator. Anyway, Scott Ricardo was the guy who spoke in his former intelligence uh, linguist. Republican proposal mandating ultrasounds before abortions. I mean, this is, this is really uh, 
Carnival. I mean, it's just sick what these guys think. No? Don't you think? Yeah. We yeah. Rand Paul concedes he will cut Medicare and Social Security to pay for tax cuts. What kind of a peckerhead is this guy? We paid into Social Security yeah, yeah, and but Medicare. He, you know, he just, just so he, that he can have a bigger tax cut? This guy is as stupid as the, as the world gets. They don't get any stupider than Rand Paul. Rand Paul is testing the limits of what a candidate can advocate while still being elected. Yesterday on Fox News, Sunday, Paul admitted that he would eventually have to raise the retirement age for Social Security and reduce benefits for Medicare in order to pay for the Bush tax cuts. While Paul was very vague about what kinds of cuts he would make, the administration by itself is important. The admission by itself is important. In previous elections, Social Security and Medicare have been considered the third rail of politics. Politicians who merely talked about making cuts to the popular programs many times found themselves dead on election day. Paul conceded he would have to cut Social Security and Medicare in order to pay for the extension of the Bush tax cuts. As Chris Wallace noted, a full extension of the Bush tax cuts, which Paul advocates for, would reduce the federal revenue by about $4 trillion over the next 10 years. The government would either need to add another $4 trillion to national debt or to make some serious cuts to entitlement programs to offset the lost revenue. In his initial answer, Paul tries to simply say he will reduce spending, but, his, but his, to his credit, host Chris Wallace challenges him saying that government would need to cut entitlement programs to reduce spending that much. It is at this time that Paul agrees he would need to raise the retirement age and cut Medicare benefits as well. Paul's opponent, Jack Conway, says he would reduce Medicare fraud and close tax loopholes to help pay for the Bush tax cuts. In fairness to Paul, Conway's cuts would also not completely offset the cost of the extending the tax cuts. Conway made a courageous move in agreeing to debate Paul in the Republican-friendly Fox News network. Polls seen on the left has shown Conway consistently trailing Paul by a small margin. In the past, Paul has made a number of mistakes when interviewing before the national media. It is possible that Conway agreed to debate, hoping to get Paul to make one more embarrassing statement on camera. It is yet to be seen whether Paul's statements on Medicare and Social Security will hurt him with Kentucky voters this November. Well, I sure hope so. I don't know. Kentucky's a pretty stupid state. They've really, they got Mitch McConnell, you know, they got Rand Paul. Uh, there's not much hope, and they're the poorest country. They're one of the poorest states in the country, right? Uh, it's, 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 it's federal federal workers strike. Did you see that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, federal contract workers strike. Demand living wage. Federal contract workers strike demand living wages. Senate Cook, I have to use food stamps so my kids don't go hungry. Contract workers in federal buildings, including cooks and janitors, went on strike April 22nd to protest low wages, which forced many of them to rely on food stamps to feed their families. So President Obama, through, through President Obama, through executive order, raised the minimum wage for federal contractors to $10.10. It is not enough. Bertrand Olotara, a cook who works in the U.S. Senate cafeteria, 
says he makes $12 an hour and has taken a second job working 70 hours a week. Yet he has trouble paying rent, buying school supplies for his kids, and putting food on the table. I hate to admit it, but I have to use food stamps so that my kids don't go to bed hungry. He wrote in a powerful opinion place piece published in The Guardian. Olotara says he wants presidential hopefuls to know that he lives in poverty. Many senators canvass the country giving speeches about creating opportunity for workers and helping our kids achieve the American dream. Most don't seem to notice or care that the workers in their own building are struggling to survive, he writes. He also wants elected officials to award federal contracts to good American companies that pay workers a living wage and other base decent benefits like paid leave and allow us to collectively bargain so that we don't need to strike to have our voices heard. There you go, folks. This is not a government for the people. No. It's the greatest hypocrisy. Money can buy. There's another one that um fight for fifteen. This is a fight for fifteen dollars an hour. Um, nationwide. And uh thousands of food fast food worker employees walk off the job on Wednesday in order to rally for higher wages as part of the coordinated efforts. Uh, series of demonstrations held across the country and the world. As sit-ins and others' acts of civil disobedience continue uh, from coast to coast, local reports from mid-Wednesday suggest that planned protests had so far been largely well attended in cities. And not a word of this, not a word of this a year uh, last week uh, was mentioned on the mainstream media. You know that? No, the I know. Mainstream news, not no, over no, of, of these uh, fights. As citizens and other acts of civil disobedience continue from coast to coast, local reports from mid-Wednesday suggest that planned protests have so far been largely well attended in the cities, including New York, Detroit, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Demonstrators had announced previously that they'd be rallying across the U.S. on Wednesday, April 15th, to push for increasing the national minimum wage to $15 an hour. We covered this last Wednesday, by the way. Mm -hmm. We did speak about this. More than half of the American fast food employees depend on public assistance to make ends meet. According to the 2013 report, uh, Berkeley Labor Center, uh, and researchers said in a report published this week that the majority of Americans who survive off of government assistance are nevertheless members of working families. That's really sick. Mm-hmm. So, oh, this fight against 15. So, anyway, folks, there's a fight out there for people trying to make a living wage. On a brighter side, cannabis, or marijuana, more than 100 times safer than alcohol, study finds. I don't know. I believe it. I do, too. And let's go. Here, come on. Let's come up here. Come on. Come on, boys. Let's go. I don't want this one coming up too quickly. Okay. You are 114 times more likely to die from overdosing on alcohol than you are from cannabis. A recent study was found. 
Huh. The report published in Scientific Reports Journal compared the risk associated with 10 substances using the margin of exposure approach. This method compares a lethal dose of the drug with a dosage uh, typically taken by recreational users. Substances tested, including alcohol and nicotine, as well as illicit drugs, including cocaine, heroin, ecstasy, and methamphetamines. It found that the mortality risk to individuals posed by cannabis was approximately 114 times less than that of alcohol. In fact, cannabis was the only substance to be classified as low risk. In contrast, alcohol posed the highest risk to individuals and was ranked alongside nicotine, cocaine, and heroin as high risk. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's very hard to stop smoking, I mean. Well, smoking, drinking, and what was the other one? Methamphetamines. <laughs> yeah. In terms of risk posed to a population, alcohol is the only substance classified as high risk. However, the researchers noted that this was partly due to its wide availability and lack of data on the other illicit drugs. The report said that many European governments adopted restrictive policies toward cannabis and other illicit drugs due to the perception that they were more harmful than alcohol and tobacco. Specifically, the results confirmed that the risk of cannabis may have been overestimated in the past. The report said, in contrast, the risk of alcohol may have been commonly underestimated. So, you know, this is happening all over the place. Despite widespread de decriminalization, cannabis is still classed as illegal in most European countries, even in the Netherlands. Famous for their liberal stance toward the drug, cannabis can only be purchased from licensed coffee shops. In 2001, Portugal discriminalized all drugs, meaning that uh, certain cases for personal use would not lead to prosecution. Huh. So, anyway, interesting. No, I think so. North Carolina could be the next state to legalize medical marijuana. The Register editorial will take a guess who favors legalizing the sales of fireworks. <laughs> uh, okay, Obama claims he yanked the U.S. economy out of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Let's see if he makes sense on this one. What do you think, Lila? Gamble. Uh, uh, well, the Bush did a horrible, horrible, horrible job. He destroyed us. And these banks stole trillions of dollars. And uh, let's see. This is one laughable clip from His Majesty's interview with Chris Tingles Matthews uh, talking about Trans-Pacific Partnership. Once again, he, like many, likes he, again, he, like many, likes to make the comparison of being in the worst recession since the Great Depression, yet facts remain that the numbers today are worse than they were then. Huh. Did people in the 1930s have two mortgages with payments at or over 50% of their debt to racial income? Have credit card debt or personal debt ten to $15,000? One or two car loans, or at least fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, have more than one source of income per household to just get by. Be on the hook for the national debt of eighteen plus trillion in unfunded liabilities and one hundred twenty-eight trillion dollars. This is literally just the tip of the iceberg. Don't forget, over a hundred million Americans remain out of work to this day. 
but he claims everything is sunshine and rainbows. Uh, the U.S. economy is and remains in shambles because of those things Obama touts as successes. The middle class is not getting a fair deal, as he suggests. People are making less now than they were years ago. And it isn't corp America's fault. It's not. It's no secret Obama companies are sitting on the money they're making and are justified in doing it. Why? All of Obama's policies, from Obamacare to his weak foreign policies, have run companies out of the U.S. or business entirely. I don't particularly agree with this concept, with this thing. I don't know let's see where it comes from. Saving the Republic is the name of this place. But, you know, they get claims, but most Republican claims don't make any sense at all. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, anyway. What's uh, going on?
We are back. Now, this is an interesting article. Uh, helicopters just flew to close Walmart. Here's what's taking place inside. It's from a conservative post. It says, last week, 2,200 Walmart employees all over the U.S. were laid off and given just a few hours' notice as their stores were shut down for unknown reasons. Huh. Conspiracy theorists soon think they're closing to the government, suggesting that they were shut down so the stores could be used for military um, training operations. Now residents of Big Spring, Texas, where one of the most closed Walmart stores is located, have reported that they have seen helicopters and other military vehicles coming into their town. I saw a train carrying all sorts of military equipment heading into Big Spring, said one resident, um, according to InfoWars. There were also about 14 helicopters flying over the big airport last night, and a tank getting driven through that open field. And it's scary seeing that they are not knowing what the world is what in the world is going on. Um, Anyway, it seems interesting, but it's not. Um, I thought this was really interesting. I know we're talking a lot about marijuana, but it's coming to it's 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 so close to being uh, approved medically in so many places, and all this information is coming out. But this was really fascinating. This one, this this article here uh, from. Um, Uh, it says that scientists discover that cannabis can reduce brain damage caused by alcohol. Chemicals within cannabis have powerful antioxidant properties, and scientists believe this can protect the brain from damage. Too much alcohol can lead to permanent brain damage, among other things. A recent study from the University of Kentucky and the University of Maryland concluded that a chemical in marijuana called cannabinoil uh, should be Use, could be used to prevent alcohol-induced brain damage. The study was published in September 2013 in the journal Pharmacology, Biochemistry, and Behavior. The study outlines how excessive alcohol consumption results in neurodegeneration as well as behavioral and cognitive impairment that are hypothesized to contribute to the chronic and relapsing nature of alcohol. alcoholism. As a result, they aim to study to study the transdermal delivery of cannab cannabidiol, cannabidiol for the or CBD for the treatment of alcohol-induced neurodegeneration. At the conclusion of the study, results demonstrated that the feasibility of using CBD transdermal delivery systems to the treatment of alcohol-induced neurodegeneration, just like THC. CBD is another chemical found in marijuana. The difference is that it doesn't get you high. Yeah, but it, 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 it's reparative. It, it repairs uh, the system. Uh, it is suggested that the neuroprotective uh, effects of CBD 
uh, observed during binge alcohol-induced neurodegeneration are due to its high antioxidant capacity. CBD acts as a stronger antioxidant than many well-known antioxidants. And this new study was done on rat models and skin pads and regular needle injections. Both period, both methods produce similar magnitudes of neuroprotection. So that was interesting. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Um, anyway, go to, go to that article in the Neuroscience. Um, we got about five minutes left, and quite frankly, I'm trying to run out of articles here to talk to you about. But um, overall, I to me the the problem that we have with the upcoming election cycle, okay, is uh, is that we. We still trust this two-party political system. This is amazing. Hey, this is a kind of insanity that 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 just blows my mind. Okay, blows me away. Now here, a Republican governor, Kansas governor, claims forcing pregnancy upon women is good for the economy. That's right. Forcing pregnancy upon women is good for the economy. So we can buy all kinds of things. Well, that's what the governor says in Kansas. The cost of having children is high, and there are more people than there are jobs. But Kansas Governor Sam Brownback insists that forcing women to have babies is good for the economy. What the hell are you going to force women to have babies? During an interview on Washington Watch, with Hate Group's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins, Brownback claimed that Kansas' economy is exploding because he has signed 10 anti-abortion bills into state. Into the state, <laughs> says Brownback is Brownback. It's working. We want Kansas to be in the best place in America to do two things: raise a family, grow a small business, and we are moving that way. I signed 10 pro-life bills. There's another one moving through the legislature. Later, Perkins responded by heaping praise on Brownback for somehow showing that forcing women to carry pregnancies to term and an improving economy are connected. Well, Perkins said, what you're showing in Kansas is that you can have a pro-family agenda and at the same time a pro-economic growth agenda, and the two are not, rather than being mutually exclusive, they are entwined with one another. Well, happy that Perkins willingly strokes, strokes, uh, stroked his air ego, Brownback claims that the economy is lagging because people are not being forced to form families in this country. People who don't have kids are only hurting their own financial well-being, he said. Well, Brownback uh, said, they really support each other. Frankly, one of the big problems we have in country in the country is we're not forming enough families, and that is hurting our economic uh, work and hurting our economic projections because the best place for the child is within a strong family. And if you're not forming a family unit, you're, you are only slowing your economic performance. So this thing really tied together, and I think we really do have a disservice politically when we separate them. 
So this idiot, Brownback blatantly ignored his own state's crumbling economy during the interview. Uh, since eliminating taxes on 191,000 businesses across the state, Kansas now faces a massive budget deficit of $1.1 billion, and it's only getting worse. For much worse, the Brownback is trying to plug the budget hole he created by slashing education spending. This guy wants more. This, this asshole wants more uh, babies, bigger families. He's cutting education. He gave 191,000 credits to, to all the small businesses in Kansas. I mean, what the... Uh, furthermore, having kids doesn't magically improve a person's economic quality. Sure, you can take advantage of child tax credits and bigger tax returns, but on average, it costs 250000 to $300,000 to raise a child from birth to the age of 18, far more than tax credits provide. And if you have more than one child, the cost to raise your kids doubles. For example, having four kids would cost about a million dollars to raise. So while having kids can be a joyful experience, it can be financially crippling, especially for teen girls who get pregnant before they finish school. According to National Conference of State Legislators, not only does pregnancy have a negative impact on the education prospects of teen girls, it also severely harms them economically. So, so much for this idiot. Complete idiot. Uh, sorry, folks. Kansas is crazy. I got a lot of readers from Kansas, too. You know? yeah. yeah. Actually, not Kansas. Missouri. I have a lot of Missouri readers. Kansas City, Missouri. I have a lot of, lot of, lot of readers who uh, come to our site from that, from that, uh, that, uh, that city. Anyway. Well, in July, you have to come in from there. Because uh, they like truth, they like honesty, and they like our, they like my stuff. Well, that's good enough reason for them. Good enough for me. And they listen to our show. So that's good. So anyway. We have less than a minute, so we should wind down. Yeah. Congress just launched its first strike against women and lesbian, uh. gays, bisexual, and transgenders, people under the guise of defending religious liberty. Who do you see in there? I, I don't know, folks. I don't. I'm tired. I'm tired of this stuff, Lila. I can't read they anymore. Even had the I can't read yet. anymore. This junk. These yeah. people, they're so horrible. Say goodnight, Leo. I'm saying goodnight. And please, whatever you do, don't vote Republican, please. Yeah. God, this, and this, this people are out of their freaking mind. And maybe the Democrats will put up somebody decent. Good night, folks. And don't vote for Hillary. Mm. Yeah, they're all, they're, these people are they're all, all part completely of the sick. Club. Totally sick. All right, just vote for your unions, folks. Keep unionized, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. And uh, good luck, everybody. Uh, I hope I can find my music there. Where's my music? Lila? Something? Well, as much as I want to get out of here, for some reason I can't seem to, can't seem to get.
right, everybody. Have a good evening.